Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church this morning. As you know, as some of you know, most of you know, I've been out of the pulpit uh, more recently than in it. Uh, being away, especially due to sickness, has been especially painful for me. I, I don't like to be away from the pulpit. And I will tell you that COVID did knock me for a loop for a couple of weeks, uh, but thankfully I was able to come through it and I feel 100% now. But being away, again, is painful, but it does give me a much different perspective. It does give me a much different perspective because my time away has given me time to reflect upon and pray for the body of Christ, especially especially with all the transition that we're going through. Uh, it, it, it's more difficult to do so, I have to say, when I'm preparing for sermons. When I'm spending so much time preparing, it's more difficult to spend time really reflecting on the body. And so I'm able to do that in those times. In short, really, it is good for me and the, for the body when others come in and preach. And I'm so thankful for the men at Grace Jacks and for Bay and, and for others, who Phil as well, who have stepped in and, and preached over the last uh, few weeks. Having said that, I am incredibly thankful to be back in the pulpit uh, for a few, few weeks. Today, I plan to finish our study in Ephesians. Uh, this is, by the way, the 85th sermon in Ephesians. <laughs> 85 sermons. It's been a big study. Uh, next week, uh, we will look at the rest of the story at Ephesus. So I guess this is gonna, that would be the 86th sermon in the series. Uh, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And after that, we're going to jump back to the Old Testament for a few weeks and the book of Jonah before we arrive back in the New Testament at the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, I also want to tell you that on March 13th, we have the privilege of having Lance Quinn come and preach for us. The, the prayer would be that we would be in the new building, uh, the new rental, and that we would have Lance Quinn preaching for us on, on the 13th. Lance, uh, if you don't know, uh, has spent several years in ministry with John MacArthur and has pastored several years at uh, the Little Rock Bible Church or the Bible Church of Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, actually, I'm from Arkansas. He's a fellow Razorback fan. So that's, a, that's an interesting... Oh, I'm not supposed to say that in public, am I? In, in Gator country. But, but yeah, he's a, he's a fellow Razorback. Um, recently, he joined the staff at Grace Emanuel Bible Church in Jupiter and has joined the administration at the Expositor Seminary. So I'm just telling you, you are in for a treat uh, when he comes to preach on the, on the 13th. As I just said, today we're going to finish our text in Ephesians, Ephesians 6, 21 through 24. I want to tell you, as we get started this morning, this passage couldn't be more timely for our church. As most of you know, we're experiencing major change. I mean, this is transition, a time of transition with the Chang family departing last week and, and with the uh, situation with the new rental coming up. Uh, the transition, I hope, will give others or give people opportunities, give you opportunities to, to serve in new ways. Now, I believe today's text will give us a glimpse into how God has always worked through change and even turmoil in the body of Christ. And so I think today we'll see that. We know from other parts of the letter, from the letter of, of Ephesians, we know that, that Paul is actually writing this from an imprisonment for the sake of the gospel of the Gentiles. We're going to see that more clearly in a moment. We also know that he was aware uh, that the church, the church at Ephesus, was in danger of losing heart as they pondered the truth that their leader was suffering these tribulations in prison. Earlier in chapter 6, he had asked him to pray specifically for him as he made known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. But Paul understood, Paul understood that the church, as he ended this letter, the church craved even more information regarding his circumstances. They wanted specifics. So as Paul closes this letter to the Ephesians, he gives critical insight into the true, into true faithfulness, the true faithfulness of a believer and the true faithfulness of the body of Christ. And in doing so, I believe he gives us a model of faithfulness that we should follow during times of transition and, yes, even turmoil. So let me pray, and then we'll read the text, and then we'll dive into the sermon this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. <clears throat> Father, I pray that you would give me that you would give me clarity. Father, I pray that we know the promise that your word will not return void. It will do the work that it was intended to do. I pray that it would do that just this morning, or that would do that this morning. I pray, Lord, that I would, that I would decrease as you increase. May this 
time bring you glory. Father, that you would be glorified alone. In Christ's name, amen. Let me read the text. Paul writes in verse 21, this is Ephesians 6, 21, but that you may also know my, about my circumstances, how I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us, and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. This past several years have been filled with stories of men and women leaving the faith. Many of these Christians have been artists, Christian artists, but some have been prominent Christian authors and even pastors. Just a few weeks ago, another Christian artist announced that he was walking away from faith in Christ. Brady Goodwin, also known stylistically as Fanatic, announced in a video on his Facebook page that he had come to question things during his time in seminary. In his own words, he had withdrawn not only from the local church, but he has removed his membership from the universal church. He basically said, I couldn't amen what I used to be able to amen. With that brief statement, he denounced the Christian faith that he believed, proclaimed, and defended for the past 30 years of his life. Sadly, he spent a majority of that time traveling the world, preaching the gospel to others, a gospel that he no longer believes. Now, I believe his story is instructive. In 2014, he began to question his faith. Prior to that, he had completed Bible college, and during that time, he changed his view on biblical inerrancy. In my opinion, as you listen to this man, that change put him on what I would call a slippery slope. During seminary, he began to further question the faith, and he started to second-guess the answers he had been given, especially by his professors. After seminary, he dove into trying to, in his own words, trying to experience God in his world instead of in his word. He spent several years without spending any amount of time in, in, in a deep level of study of the word of God. Finally, Finally, after, after several years of this, a brother challenged him to dive back into Scripture. And when he did, in his words, he began to see issue after issue. He found that he could no longer believe the presuppositions of Christianity by faith. In his words, the armor that he once possessed, using the words of Ephesians 6, had fallen away. It was no longer there. Now, after that time, he spent a year pursuing professors and people knowledgeable in the original language languages to answer his questions. And it was at that point that he found or decided that he could no longer believe in the Christian faith. He came to the place where he believed that he understood the nature of the Bible better than he ever did as a Christian. Again, and that's, that's in his words. But understanding this understanding left him at a place that he could no longer believe it to be the Word of God. Interestingly enough, he, say, he says he still loves the idea of the message of the gospel and loves the people of the church. Sadly, and I think we know this, many, many times men in this position, men who have turned away from the faith, who have made shipwreck of their faith, men in this position end up trying to church to their newly found, quote-unquote, their newly found truth. Even so, even so, this man's story is incredibly sad to me. Quite literally, he's a man who has lost his faith and, and, and his encompass of his entire life. And I'm reminded of Demas, of whom Paul said, loved this present world and des- deserted him. That's in 2 Timothy 4, 9 and 10. This man's apostasy, that would be Brady Goodwin's apostasy, also reminds me of Paul's words in 1 Timothy 1, 18 to 20. Just listen. He says, this command, I trust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Now, as you probably know, and I've mentioned earlier, this musician is just another in a long line of men and women who have walked away from the faith. They call it deconstructing your faith. 
In the past years, men like, men like Joshua Harris and Paul Maxwell uh, of Desiring God, let's, let's use the, 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 the biblical description, they have made shipwreck of their faith. Sadly, a good many of others have not officially walked away from Christianity, per se, but have attached themselves to, to liberal denominations. And I think they do this. I think they do this to save their Christian brand while rejecting the more, quote-unquote, conservative ideas of, of the ministry, or of, the, of the Scripture, that is. In other words, they leave Bible-believing denominations over the more objectionable, objectionable parts of the Bible. Unfortunately, I think Beth Moore is an example of this. She left the SBC over the role of women in church leadership and has become a member of the Anglican Church of America. That denomination allows women to serve as clergy members. And I bring that up because, and I, and I want to hit that because Brady Goodwin said that he could have done the same thing. He could have done the same thing. He could have gone liberal, so to speak. But he said, he, and, and I respect him for this, he said he felt doing so would be dishonest. Just listen to his words. I alluded to this earlier, but I want you to listen to this quote. I think I understand when I hold the Bible in my hands, I think I understand what I'm now holding. I think I understand it now better than I ever have, and I don't believe it. But I understand it. I actually still love the gospel. I actually still love the message that has been massaged and presented to us. The way the scriptures present themselves, the various authors, I get it. I just don't believe it, end quote. John Cooper, uh, another musician, he's the lead vocalist of Skillet. Uh, it, it ends up that he's a pretty solid guy, says the following uh, about this recent spate of people who have walked away from the faith. He observed that essentially they're saying, and I'm quoting him, I've been living and preaching boldly for something for 20 years. Now, he's quoting them, right? So he's saying, he's saying I've been... They're saying, I've been living and preaching boldly something for 20 years and led generations of people with my teachings, and I now no longer believe it. Therefore, I'm going to boldly and loudly tell people it was all wrong while I boldly and loudly lead people into the next truth. Why be, this is his question, why be so eager to continue leading people when you clearly don't know where you're headed? End quote. John Cooper captures the confusion that we're seeing in evangelical circles. I believe we're seeing a crisis in evangelicalism in, in the church, in the, in the, in the visible church. I, see, I think we're seeing this crisis created by a departure from the centrality of God's Word. James captures this. The biblical author James captures this problem in James 4. I would argue that James is primarily addressing those folks in the church who are trying to ride the fence. So they're trying to, they're trying to ride the fence. They're trying to be, they claim to be Christians, but they're trying to live in the world as well, or live according to the world. But, so they're, they're, they claim to be Christians, but they're unwilling to live a life of true faith. In short, they're trying to be friends with the world while remaining Christians in name only. See, you know Christians? Christians in name only? They, they work, these people work to fuse Christianity with the spirit of the age. That's who he's addressing. James 4 then cuts to the heart of the issue. He says this, in James 4, he says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with, of the world makes himself an enemy of God. See, church, we cannot ride the fence. We can't ride the fence. You cannot be friends with the world and be, remain friends with God. You cannot walk in true faith and, and live according to the world's, world's values. You can't do it. It doesn't work. Sooner or later, trying to do so will reveal that your faith is not real. And, and this will happen when your faith is tested by the crucible of the world. Oh, what do you really believe about this, this thing or that thing? What do you really believe? And you're going, to be forced, you're going to be forced to give that answer. You're going to be forced to give an account. And when you do, your faith will be shown to be true or not. That's what James, that's, that's the message of James. In other words, you're, you're going to be challenged by the world to give an account for what you believe. And individuals with true faith will stand firm on the truth of God's Word in its entirety. And individuals with a dead faith, using James's words from James 2, will try to find ways to cede ground to the world's encroachments while maintaining some vestige of their Christian way of life. That's what happens. That's what happens, but you won't be able to, do, you won't be able to give, enough, give up enough ground. 
We're seeing today that this strategy won't work. And I think that's why you're seeing so many of these men fall away, and, and women. I believe, I believe Paul's final words in Ephesians 6, 21-24 give us a picture of true faith in Christ. True faith, which is always accompanied by true love for Christ and a love for the brethren. This type of faith endures to the end and will not succumb to the onslaughts of the world. Now, let me give, give you our outline for today. In Paul's closing words, he gives two clear yet simple commendations of faithfulness that we should pray can be said of us. We should pray that we are, we pray to be, that is, a faithful believer, and we should pray to be a faithful body, the body of Christ. Now, before we jump into the text, let me give you some context of Paul's final words. Now, as I preach through this letter, I've tried many times to help understand, help us understand Paul's reason for writing Ephesians. I've argued that Paul recognized the critical importance of the church at Ephesus to the spread of the gospel in Asia Minor. Ephesus was the first church located along a route which connected the seven churches in Asia Minor. These are the churches that are mentioned if you read Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. We'll look at Revelation 2, 1 through 7 next week. It's actually the first church mentioned there, and it's the first church along the route in this, along this road uh, in, in Asia Minor. Now, there were four great trade roads that went through Ephesus, and therefore it became known as the gateway to Asia. Ephesus was also located near a major port, which formed a connecting point between the churches in the east, such as Jerusalem and Antioch, and churches in the west, such as Rome and Corinth. Therefore, Paul wanted to protect this church because of its relative importance to the gospel mission. But we can't miss miss the fact that Paul also loved the church at Ephesus. He loved that local body of Christ. He was especially concerned considering his own situation as a Roman prisoner. Now, Paul's imprisonment then helps form the great theme uh, of this letter. Now, we see this most clearly in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul reminds the church that he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, he's talking about the Gentile church at Ephesus. Now, it's critical for us to understand to understand this because this gives us a, a, the backdrop to Paul's purpose in writing. We know from the book of Acts that Paul was imprisoned for preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. In other words, those who opposed the ministry, those who, those who were opposed to the ministry of the gospel of, of the Gentiles, they had him thrown into jail in order to silence him, in order to stop his ministry. But you see, Paul couldn't be silenced. Paul couldn't be silenced because it was God's will that he be imprisoned, number one. But it's also God's will that churches like Ephesus remain faithful to preach the gospel message. And down through the, the, down through the centuries, we've seen this faithfulness even to this church today. Now, in Ephesians 3.8, Paul reminded the church of the purpose of his ministry. He says, in, he says this in 3.8, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Again, that ministry to the Gentiles. He goes on to say in Ephesians 3, 9 through 12, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in, in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance, to, uh, in accordance with the, the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Then he says this in verse 13. This is a, Ephesians 3.13. And I, this is what I want you to see. Therefore, so he's talked about, he's, he's told them, this is the, the purpose of my ministry. And, and I'm in prison. But now I want you, therefore, in verse 13, not, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. What Paul wants them to do is continue. He doesn't want them to, to lose heart. He wants them to recognize their role in maintaining fidelity to the gospel. <coughs> he also wanted them to continue to, to preach the gospel and support other churches and plant other churches in doing the same thing. Now, I would argue that this is the reason that 
Paul encourages them in Ephesians 6, 10 through 12 to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might and put on the full armor of God so that they would be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul understood that Ephesus had a big, a big target right on them. Satan wanted nothing more than to tear them down. Satan wanted nothing more for them to lose heart and fall away. And that's exactly what Satan wants for every faithful church, right? We're all, every faithful church is in his crosshairs. And that's the reason we have to understand that we, the struggle that we have is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness. Now, I believe this is the heart of Paul's prayer request in Ephesians 6, 19-20. In those verses, he asked them to pray that, that he would be able to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. In other words, he asked them to pray that he would preach boldly no matter his circumstances. See, he was in prison, and he was before this Roman tribunal, and he wanted to be able to preach the gospel in that situation just as Christ would have him do. And then as such... He wanted the church at Ephesus to continue to participate in his ministry. He wanted them to, to continue to be a part of it through prayer. And in 620, he, he reminded them that he is a, an ambassador for the gospel, that he's in change because he had remained faithful. Again, I believe with all my heart that Paul wanted, that Paul wanted the, the church with all his heart. He wanted them to remain engaged in Jesus' command to make disciples of all the nations. I think my microphone may have gone off. It's on? Okay. He wanted them to, to remain strong and on task and, and to continue to partner with him for the purpose of planting churches and spreading the gospel. Now, I believe Paul's final words, I believe they capture his heart for the, the, his heart for the believers at Ephesus. Now, with all that as our backdrop, let's dive into the text in 621. Now, let's look at the first of two clear yet simple commendations of faithfulness we should pray can be said of us. We should pray to be simply a faithful believer, a faithful believer. Look at your text in 621. Paul writes, but that you may also know about my circumstances, how I am doing. Let's stop right there. Now that statement is very straightforward considering the background we've just discussed. You see, Paul wanted them to have specific details about his situation in Rome. He knew that the church needed to know exactly what was happening so they could participate in his ministry through prayer and, and, again, other types of support. He understood the critical importance of them staying on task and staying engaged in the fight. Therefore, they needed to know, this church needed to know, the specifics of his circumstances. Paul wanted them to, to fully grasp all, how he was doing as he faced trial before the Roman authorities. He desired for them to, to partner with him in prayer. And I, I think we see that in, in just in that request for prayer just prior to this verse. He yearned for them to, to join him in the struggle for the gospel's sake. Now, I, I would say that the phrase, how I am doing, indicates Paul's personal focus. As we read the, the pages of the New Testament, we can, we can forget that these men, they, they develop personal relationships with one, another, with one another. Paul spent much time in Ephesus. Now, let me give you just one example. In Acts 20, uh, verses 36 to 38, Luke describes the scene as Paul left the Ephesian elders at Miletus. So Paul had traveled through and he brought the Ephesian elders to him at Miletus. And he said, and this is, this is the description of what happened when he left. He said, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that he would not, they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying, accompanying him to his ship. I mean, you, can you imagine this scene? I mean, this is a very personal scene. These people loved one another. And, and as such, we can't miss the critical nature of developing close and personal relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ as we do gospel work. You see, faithful believers, they work to love and serve one another. We, we, we work, as, as Phil said last week, <coughs> to be known to one another. We can't, if you want to be a faithful believer, you can't stay on the fringes. You can't just walk into church at 1035 and sit down at the, in the back 
and sit here till, till noon and then out the door as soon as we say amen. This, no, this is a life, a life commitment to following Christ. Now let me, give you, let me give you the portrait of a faithful believer. So Paul writes, look back at your text in 621. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. Paul, Paul wanted the church at Ephesus again to know about his circumstances, so he actually sent, I mean, this is, he physically sent Tychicus, who he describes as a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. He, he sent him to Ephesus. And Paul's, in Paul's word, uh, words, Tychicus was a faithful man. Uh, Paul commends him for his faithfulness. Let's look deeper into what we know about this man. As we, as we study his life uh, through the, the lens of the New Testament, I want you to consider this quote by E.M. Bounds. E.M. Bounds says, Men are God's methods. method. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. End quote. Well, I think Tychicus is one of those men. Now, there is several mentions of this man throughout the New Testament. In Acts chapter 20, you don't have to turn there, he's part of a group who accompanied Paul as he traveled from Ephesus to Macedonia. And in 20 verse 4, we find that he is from Asia. Now, he may, have, may well have been from the region around excuse me, Ephesus or, or Colossae. He shows up, he actually shows up in the letter to the, to the Colossians. In that letter, Paul uses very similar language to describe him and the responsibility that Paul gives him. Uh, Colossians 4, 7, and 8, As to all my affairs, Tychicus, my, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant, and the Lord will bring you information. And, and he says, For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know our circumstances, and that he may encourage your hearts. Now in Titus 3, 12, again, you don't have to turn there, Paul told Titus that he would send Artemis, or Tychicus, to allow Titus to join him, join Paul in Nicopolis. Now, that's in, that's in Titus 3.12. In 2 Timothy 4.12, Paul simply says that he has sent Tychicus to Ephesus. I mean, he just says, but Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Now, I believe these, these references, again, give us the portrait of a faithful believer in Christ. Now, from these references... Let me give you five characteristics of faithfulness from the life of, from the life of this man. Now, again, again, there's, there's more. I mean, this is just things that I observe. But let me give you five. The first characteristic. Again, as I go through this, think about that God is looking, God is looking for men to use. And Tychicus was a faithful man. If you want to be a faithful man, be like Tychicus. First characteristic. He was available for ministry. That's a simple one, isn't it? He was available for ministry. This characteristic is clear as we survey his life. For example, Paul sent him to Ephesus on multiple occasions. We see this in Ephesians 6 that we're studying. We also see this in 2 Timothy 4.12. He sent him also to Colossae. We see this in Colossians 4, 7, and 8. He sent him to Crete. To He possibly sent him to Crete to relieve Titus. We see this in Titus 3.12. So clearly... This man, Tychicus, was a man who made himself available for ministry. We're not talking about, hey, go to the, go to the church down the street. We're not talking about jump in your car and, and drive, right, you know, 100 miles to go to church. No, 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 we're not talking about that. We're talking about a man who walked thousands of miles in order to do these things for Paul. Let me give you the second characteristic. So he made himself available. Let me give you a second characteristic. Tychicus was a servant of the Lord and of the saints. Notice and in, in we, we said in Colossians 4, 7, he, Paul commends him for being a faithful servant. Paul he uses similar language in our verse in, in chapter 6, verse 21, Ephesians 6, 21. Clearly, as we survey the New Testament for his, his ministry, we can see a faithful ministry as, the serv- as a servant of the Lord. And again, we can't forget the hardship he must have suffered as he logged thousands of miles walking from place to place. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, flat terrain either. I mean, we're talking about, we're talking about tough walks for miles and miles and miles. And this man willingly served in that way. And he was always willing to serve in the Lord in many capacities. It's amazing to consider that he may have delivered as many as five of Paul's letters. We know for a fact that he delivered Ephesians, because that's, we see that here. We know that he delivered Colossians. 
And we're certain we, he delivered Philemon. Now, those, those letters are tied together pretty closely. We also know from Colossians 4 that he accompanied Onesimus as he, as he, as he was returned by Paul to Philemon. So he, Paul entrusted him with that ministry to take this former slave or this slave back to his master. Now, he may have also delivered, very well it could have delivered the second letter to Timothy at Ephesus, and it's very possible that he delivered the, uh, Paul's letter to Titus. We know that he potentially delivered as many as five letters. So, so clearly, clearly this man was a servant of the Lord and the saints. Let me give you a third characteristic. Characteristic. Tychicus was intimately involved in the details of gospel ministry. The details of gospel ministry. Notice that in the letter to Ephesus and Colossians, if you read both Ephesians 6 and Colossians 4, Paul sent Tychicus with intimate details concerning his situation. He, he, I would argue... I would argue, based on what we know, that Tychicus displayed a love and a care for those involved in ministry. He made himself aware of the details. I mean, he was that kind of guy. He knew Paul. He knew Paul intimately. And and he knew the rest of the team intimately. We see that. We see the idea there that Paul said how we are doing. But he was also apparently known in, in places such as Crete and in Ephesus and Colossae. I mean, he he was a man that was known. Now I would argue this indicates that he knew the details surrounding each of those churches and he knew the ministry situations. I think that, that he was truly a man who, who moved around. He, he understood what was going on. He understood the challenge. And I believe that he must have been a loving, caring, and conscientious man. And we know for a fact that Paul trusted him. Paul implicitly trusted this man. And so therefore, I would argue that he exemplifies, we see the, the, the walk of worthiness, uh, the walk in a manner worthy of your calling in Ephesians 4.1. He exemplifies that worthy walk. Again, as we, as we go through these, uh, think of yourself. Are you this type of guy? I'm not asking you, I'm not saying you need to walk thousands of miles delivering letters. That's not the point. But are you willing to do ministry? Are you willing to be a man or a woman available for ministry? Look at a fourth characteristic. Tychicus was an encourager and comforter of the brethren. Notice again in Ephesians 6 and in Colossians 4 that Paul sent him to encourage and comfort the brethren. He says in Ephesians 6.22, I've sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts. I mean, he is, he's the instrument that, that Paul is using, that the, ultimately the Lord is using in order to impart these details, but not only that, but to comfort them with them. I mean, it, it's, it's one thing for a guy, I mean, he could just be a messenger that, that says, hey, this is what's going on. This is what's happening. You're, you know, Paul's in prison. He's about to do this. He's about to, and, and, no, he is coming there to comfort them. You see, he wasn't simply a man who delivered letters to the brethren. He may have known the rote details of each situation, but he didn't treat his knowledge simply as that. He was one who encouraged the brethren with all that Christ was accomplishing in their midst. He was sent to strengthen the believers at Colossae with these details. He was, he was also one who comforted the brethren. This has the idea of coming alongside those who were suffering in some way. I mean, Paul saw, uh, we saw that in Ephesians 3, that Paul was concerned that they might lose heart. And he wanted Tychicus to come to, the, to them. He wanted Tychicus to go to them and comfort them so that they wouldn't fall away. He was concerned that they, they were in danger of faltering. And, and, and the knowledge of his his continued imprisonment, imprisonment for their sake, I mean, for their sake, was almost too much to bear. So as a man who had surely suffered for the cause of Christ, speaking of Tychicus, he was uniquely equipped to comfort the church at Ephesus. This reminds me of 2 Corinthians uh, 1, 3-4. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. But then he says this, who comforts us in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Tychicus was that man. Tychicus was a man who wanted to be a comforter and encourager of the brethren. Fifth characteristic. He was a gifted leader and preacher of the gospel. Now, based on what we know about Tychicus, I'm inclined to believe that Paul didn't just use him as a messenger. 
I mean, we've already seen that he was an encourager and a comforter. But I would argue that he was most probably a very gifted leader and preacher of the gospel. We know that from 2 Timothy 4.12, we get a brief sketch. Paul sent him to relieve Timothy at Ephesus. Now, he may have also, he was one of the two that was a choice, he may have also relieved Titus at, at Crete. Now, in both cases, Paul trusted him to take over for Timothy and Titus. Both of these men, if I... If I'm, you know, we, we want to be clear. Both of these men had pastoral responsibilities. I mean, they were shepherds. They were shepherds of the church at Ephesus and shepherds of the church, at, the churches in Crete. And so Paul trusted this man in order to take over for two gifted shepherds. Some, some believe that he may have been the brother whose fame and the things of the gospel has spread to all the churches. That's 2 Corinthians 8, 16 through 18. It's hard to say for sure if that's true, but it makes sense considering his giftedness. It's even more amazing that, that he was willing, you know, he, he had this, it's clear he had this giftedness, and he was willing to travel from place to place. He's willing to put himself on that, in that position. Like he, he, didn't, he, didn't, he wanted to do whatever, was found, whatever he needed to do to be found faithful. Now, we see he was a truly a faithful witness of the grace of Christ. In the words of John MacArthur, ours, ours, our responsibility is simply to make our witness faithful. It is God's responsibility to, alone to make it effective. You see, Tychicus understood that his responsibility was to remain faithful, to be a faithful man. And the pages of the New Testament witness that God made his ministry effective. Now, these five characteristics that we've pointed out give us a portrait of the faithful believer. Faithful believers make themselves available for service. Faithful believers are useful servants of Christ and of the brethren. Faithful believers are willing to be used in whatever capacity is necessary. They can be counted on to do, to do whatever needs to be done. They don't, faithful believers don't hold themselves above any necessary task. They are gifted. Faithful believers are gifted. All Christians are gifted, yet they never boast about their gifts. They simply serve the Lord with humility. That's the portrait of a faithful believer, and that describes Tychicus. Now, the question that I have for you, and I ask you, do these characteristics describe you as a believer? In the words of A.W. Pink, he says, faithful, faithful people have always been in a, in a marked minority, end quote. You see, men like Tychicus, Faithful men like Tychicus are in the minority. Most of us, most of us want to just remain aloof, right? We want, to, we want to remain separate. We don't want to dig in and be like this man Tychicus. The question is, is it your desire to be a faithful, faithful servant of Christ, no matter what your situation is? If so, listen to the instructive words of Thomas Akempis. He says, wait for the Lord. Behave yourself manfully and be of good courage. Do not be faithless, but stay in your place and do not turn back, end quote. It's instructive to look at the lives of men such as Tychicus and Paul and so many other faithful believers. These type of men stay the course. They don't turn back no matter the personal cost. Can you imagine him saying, oh, Paul, you know, it's, you know that's a thousand miles away. I can't do that. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go to Crete. You know, I have to cross the water to go to Crete. I'm scared. Of, I'm scared of the water. No, that's not how he did. did and how what he did, he he does not turn back. The faithful man does not, or faithful woman does not turn back, no matter the personal cost. They they are not tossed to to and fro by every wind of doctrine. They're not friends with the world. You know, we witness we witness their faithfulness. And we want to emulate it, but we need to remember that Christ Jesus is the ultimate model for Christian service. The Apostle Paul told the Corinthian church, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Listen to the words of Matthew Henry. What we think of Christ is He altogether glorious in our eyes and precious to our hearts. May Christ be our joy, our confidence, our all. May we daily be more like to him and more devoted to his service, end quote. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to follow Christ like this man Tychicus and like the Apostle Paul. Now let me give you the second commendation of this 
of Paul's closing. Paul commends the faithfulness of the body of Christ. Look at your text in Ephesians 6.23. Paul writes, peace be to the brethren. Now, this word that he used for peace has been used seven other times in this epistle. This word has the idea of harmony or well-being. It can denote a lack of hostility. It's closely related to the Hebrew word shalom. Uh, generally, in the New Testament, this, this word denotes a peace with God. In other words, a lack of hostility with God. We see this in Ephesians 1-2. Paul writes, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We also see this same usage in Ephesians 2-17, where it says, He came and He preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who are near. And we also, again, see it in 6.15, where he says, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Again, what we see there is, is peace between man and God. Now, this word can also denote peace between believers, which can only exist when we have peace from God or peace with God. We see that type of peace in Ephesians 2.15, where he says, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that he and himself might make, he might make the two into one man, thus establishing peace, peace between, between brothers in Christ. Now, he's specifically talking about Jew and Gentile in that context. But the point, the point is, is that there's peace between, between brothers and, and between the brethren. We see this also in Ephesians 4.3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now we see that. Again, we need to recognize that true peace with God brings about peace among the brethren, that, that there's a peace that we have that, between us and God that brings about a peace between man and man. The vertical peace leads to the horizontal peace, if you will. Now I would argue that the peace that we're talking about is an objective peace, an objective peace between God and man and man and man, which brings about then a subjective peace. Now, that subjective peace comes with it, I would argue, a feeling of well-being. It's a, it's a well-being that, that, that's part of our lives when we're in a right relationship with our Lord and are in a right relationship with others. Now, this type, it is that type of peace that can encompass a, a church whose members are faithful to love one another. And I think that's what Paul's idea here is that there's a peace be to the brethren, that there's a peace with God and there's a peace with man and there's a well-being. There's a, there's a sense of peace amongst the brethren of the church. Now look back at your text in 623. Paul writes, and peace be to the brethren and love with faith. And in that phrase, Paul combines love with faith. And in Ephesians 1.15, Paul commended them for their faith in Jesus and their love toward the saints. In 3.17, he connected faith and love again. In that verse, he, he spoke of Jesus dwelling in their hearts through faith and that they, that they would be rooted and grounded in love. Now, it should be clear from those verses that, that uh, clear to us that faith and love go together. Uh, that is to say that true love, let me say it this way, true love cannot exist without faith. Uh, I, I can say it again this way, I cannot truly love others in the body of Christ or elsewhere, unless I'm acting in faith. Uh, it, that's precisely James's point in James chapter 2 when he exhorted, just listen to his words. Just listen to what he's saying here. He says in James 2, 14 through 17, he says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but has, he has no works? Can that faith save him? Then he says this. Now think of this in, in the context of love. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. The point is, is that if I'm not, if, if I'm not acting in love that's born out of faith, I, I have, it's a, it's a dead faith. Beloved, Beloved, true faith in Jesus always works it out, itself out in true love for God and for others. James calls that the royal law or the, or the law of our king. In the words of our Lord Jesus, we are then to, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. I mean, that, that, is, that is the royal law. That's the two greatest commandments. 
and we can't truly do those things. We can't truly love in that way outside of faith in Christ. Outside of faith in who the person and work of Christ. Now look back at your text in Ephesians 6.23. Paul writes, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are the only true source of peace and love. You know, peace and love, baby. You know, that, that I, the 70s hippie idea, peace and love, whatever. Look, there is no peace and love outside of its true source. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot have peace with God without Him making peace with us. And according to 2 Corinthians 5, 18, God reconciled us to Himself through Christ. And He says, he says that, that God has done this. God is the source of that reconciliation. God is the source of that love. And therefore, we can't truly have love for God or for others if God has not loved us first. If you turn to 1 John 1, 4, I want to show you this even more clearly. Verse 16, 1 John 4, 16. We've come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Now. Do you know why we can have confidence concerning judgment? Why we can have confidence concerning the coming judgment? Because our love comes from faith in God. We believe in Him. We abide in Him. Therefore, we can have confidence in Him. Now look at verse 18, 1 John 4, 18. He says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. Now, beloved, love is perfected by believing in Him and abiding in Him. Said another way, our love is perfected by or through faith in Jesus. Now, look at 1 John 4.19. This is the main point. We love because, because, on account of, This is the reason that we can love is because He first loved us. He is the source of that love. So so we love Him and others because He is the source. It is from Him. Do you want to be a part of a church that loves God and loves one another? church that's like-minded in Christ, then we need to recognize that God is the true source of that love. Look back at your text in 1 John 4, 20 and 21. John gets very, very practical here, and I, I think you need to listen and take heed to this. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. This And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So we see a very practical outworking of this love. As we, if we're saying that we abide in God, then that outworking of that abiding in God is love for God and love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now let me tie this back to Paul's closing in Ephesians 6. Look back at Ephesians 6, 21 through 24. Let me paint a picture here for you. These final four verses, I I would argue, are a vivid illustration of the kind of love and oneness that Paul has been exhorting throughout his letter to the, the Ephesian church. These verses illustrate a love born out of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and a oneness that is supernatural in the Holy Spirit. In other words, the church has been given oneness in the Holy Spirit, and what Paul wanted them to experience, the Ephesian believers, he wanted them to experience that that oneness that they'd been given. I also believe that he desired to, them to experience, he exi- desired to experience that same oneness with them. 
Even though he was in prison in, in Rome, thousands of miles away, his thoughts were on their welfare. His thoughts were on the welfare of the, the brethren in Ephesus. Here he is facing a Roman tribunal, and he's concerned about the brethren in Ephesus. And considering that, he sent Tychicus to give them a detailed report of his circumstances. Clearly, he wanted the church to experience a peace which surpasses understanding and a true love which is accompanied only accompanied by faith in the Father and the Son. He wanted them to participate with him by knowing the details of his situation and by praying for him. Brother, this is the kind of church we want to be. This is the kind of church we want to be. We want to be a church that walks by faith and not by sight. We want to be a church that truly loves Christ and loves others. We want to be a church that, that loves the truth of God's Word. We want to be a church that is one in the Holy Spirit. As such, if we are that type of church, we will go to the ends of the earth. We will go to the ends of the earth to heartily proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to a world that desperately, desperately, desperately needs the love of Christ. Now I want you to notice what Paul says in Ephesians 6.24. He says, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love. Now I want you to take special note of the words incorruptible love. The, the word translated incorrupt, incorruptible has the idea, the word translated incorruptible has the idea of not being subject to decay or interruption. Now you could even bring in the idea of immortality and, or eterna, eternality into this, this idea. I mean, it's a, it's a love that never ends. It's incorruptible. It doesn't change. The Holman Christian Standard Bible translates this verse, grace be with all who have an undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to be a part of a church full of people with an undying love for Jesus. Friends, only those who have an undying love for our Lord have true faith in Him. And those are the ones who live faithfully before Christ, who walk in faithfulness as they love others because they love Christ. <laughs> they walk in faith. They are able to walk in faith. They know, look, when I put myself out there and I get hurt, it's because I have faith that I can keep going. Right? I'm going to get hurt in church. I hate to tell you that. I, I prayed earlier, we're all porcupines. We're going to get hurt. Well, but if I'm walking in faith, then I can love unconditionally. Right? Outside of that, I can't do so. I want to be a part of that kind of church. And I hope you do too. Now let me give you a preview, a brief preview of next week's sermon. Turn to Revelation 2.1. Now, I'm, next week, I'm going to give you the postscript to this letter at Ephesus. Look at Revelation 2.1. Paul writes, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Now, so basically, this is a message from our Lord to the church at Ephesus. So, it's the Lord speaking directly to this church. Now, I would argue that, that this was written uh, some 28 years later. So, so I think this was probably written somewhere around 80, 90. So this is a, this quite a while later. Uh, probably a couple of generations may have even passed at that point. Now skip down to Jesus' final words to the church. We'll look at this entire message late, uh, next week, but I want, you to, I want you to see this. He says in verse 4, sorry, skip down to verse 4. He says this, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. See the connection? Paul said, grace to those who love Christ with an incorruptible love. But just a few generations later, just one or two generations later, Jesus is telling the same church, you've left your first love. He says, therefore, remember from where you've fallen, re repent and do the deeds you did at first. Do the deeds... In Paul's day, be the church you were in Paul's day, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. 
So apparently by the time John writes to them, many at the church at Ephesus had abandoned their love for Christ. Now they had done a lot of great things, and we'll see that next week. But that is, that's a scary, scary message, isn't it? Church, we want to be like the church at Ephesus in Paul's day. Not like the church in Ephesus in John's day. And we can hope and pray that they did repent. Now, this brings up something, though. We can't assume that we will always remain as we are. right? We, can, we, may, be the, we may be the cat's meow in terms of churches. right? We may love one another, and we may be doing all these things that we ought to be doing. But we need to be diligent to abide in Christ and His Word. A departure from the truth of God's Word, as we saw with, and, I, and this is part of the reason I brought up this, this man, Brady Goodwin, earlier in the, in the introduction. A departure from the truth of God's Word is the first step away from our love for Christ. Just listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. The church is always to be under the Word. She must be. We must keep her there. We must not assume that because the church started correctly, she will continue so. She did not do so in the New Testament times. She has not done so since. Without being constantly reformed by the Word, the church becomes something very different. And that's the warning. That's the warning. Now, we've considered the church. Let me take you back to your personal walk of faithfulness as a believer in Christ. I started this sermon, as I said earlier, with examples of men and women who have abandoned the faith and rejected the truth of God's Word. I think the the words of Charles Spurgeon are instructive as we consider these things. He says this, I know of nothing which I would choose to have as the subject of my ambition for life than to be kept faithful to my God till death, still to be a soul winner, still to be a true herald of the cross and cross and testify the name of Jesus to the last hour. Then he says this, it is only such who in the ministry shall be saved. End quote. Beloved, this idea of faithfulness is incredibly, incredibly important. To remain abiding in Christ, to remain in His Word, to walk in faith, to avail yourself, You want, to be, you want to remain faithful? Be truly a man or a woman of God. Be intent on serving God like Tychicus served. Lastly, if you're here today and you know nothing of true love and faith in Christ, all these things are confusing to you. And maybe you're living according to the desires of your flesh. And you love the world and all that is in the world. Perhaps, perhaps you're here today and you're playing the part of a hypocrite. You, you profess faith in Him, the, the external faith, but your heart is far away from Him. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, whether you're a drunk lying in a gutter or a hypocrite dressed up to look like a Christian, your fate is the same. Your righteousness will not save you. But either way, either way, God is a merciful God. He desires for you to come to repentance. He desires for you to turn to Him in saving faith. I love the, the words of Paul in Titus 3, 3 through 3-7. And I'll just use his, this uh, passage to close. Just think of, if you're a believer in Christ, rejoice in these words. If you don't believe in Him, understand that He's calling you to Himself even today. Don't let the day go by without answering that call. Titus 3, 3-7. For we also were once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If you're here today and you don't know Him, if you haven't turned to Him in saving faith, our Lord Jesus went to the cross 
to bear our sins, to take upon Himself the wrath which we deserve, which you deserve. He bids you now to come to Him. He bids you to come and find rest in Him. Rest that you can find only in our Lord. If the Holy Spirit has laid anything on your heart in the preaching of this sermon, whether it is to come to know the Lord, please contact myself or Bay or, or one, a mature Christian to answer your questions. And I can be contacted any time during the week if you'd like to speak to me for anything. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this evening or this, morning, this afternoon uh, for your goodness to us. Father, I pray this, for this time, I pray that you You would use these words. You would use this feeble effort of a, of a man for your glory. I pray that if anyone here doesn't know you, that you would turn them to yourself, that you would save them. Father, we thank you for your word and praise you. In Christ's name, amen.